From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Atlanta native Nick Stone has not shied away from racism, belonging, and the weight of history in her novels for young adults. The New York Times bestselling author pulls those themes together in her debut novel for middle grade readers in Clean Getaway, which comes out tomorrow. 11-year-old William Scoob Lamar spends his spring break crossing the Deep South in a Winnebago with his eccentric grandmother. He's escaping punishment for fighting at school and soon realizes that Jima, as he, call her, as he calls her, is also on the lam from something he doesn't quite understand. Nick Stone is with us in the studio to talk about this epic road trip. Nick, great to have you back with us. Thank you. All right, so this is your first middle grade novel. After a string of really successful YA novels. What's what's behind the shift to a younger audience? Um, Really a request. Uh, My first novel, Dear Martin, is um, it's assigned in a lot of high schools, but there are a lot of middle and and elementary school teachers who read it and want something that addresses racism for kids in like fourth through eighth grade. Uh, So I wrote something a little less um, (laughs) older. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> a little less intense. A little less intense. I mean, it's interesting because it's it's intense, but in a different way. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was happy to fulfill the request. Well, and it just kicks off very quickly, like a road trip. You know, you're on. The, there's a lot of action. We get 11-year-old Scoob and his grandmother, Ruby Jean, or Jima, as he calls her. Early on, we learn that Scoob is African-American and his grandmother is white. What is their relationship like? It is a typical grandmother-grandson relationship, I think. Um, My children actually have a white grandmother. My husband is biracial, and we took our children to Israel, which is where my mother-in-law lives. We took them to Israel for Christmas this, like, a few weeks ago. Mm -hmm. And so it was my younger son's first time meeting his grandmother. But, you know, she's Baba. You know, she's Russian, so she's Baba, short for Babushka. And they love her. And I think that that's what I was trying to bring across in Clean Getaway is that, like, even though this grandmother and grandson are different races, they are still a grandmother and grandson. Oh, and she's a pistol. She's oh, like she's four foot so 11. Good. And just, you know, I imagine her always sort of running like an energizer bunny. So what, what is he getting away from when he gets in this Winnebago? So Scoop has a tricky relationship with his father. Um, His father is very hard on him. Um, Not, it's it's a tough, it's a very tough love situation. Um, His father's father, so Jima's husband, spent his life in prison. And so Scoob's father has been trying to make sure that's a path that Scoob does not wind up on. So he's very, very hard on him to the point that when things happen, he rarely gives Scoob an opportunity to kind of speak for himself and explain why things have gone the way they've gone. So he's had these two situations at school, and um, his father has put him on lockdown after the second one. And so he is trying to get out of this situation at home where he feels misunderstood and he feels like he's being kind of unfairly punished, in a sense. Yeah, and he gets some perspective, I think, from Jima as they're on their road trip. And they are actually, they're embarking on a trip across southern states, Mm -hmm. primarily, in the Deep South, using her tattered copy of the Green Book. First, a little refresher on the Green Book. You know, maybe a lot of people saw that film. 
Uh, but Scoob knew nothing about that book. Uh, did you as a child? Not as a child. I learned about it when I was writing this book. Um, I have a friend who I was telling her about the concept for the book, and she was like, oh, my gosh. I should send you my grandmother's green book. And that's when I learned about the green book. I was, I was like 33, 32 or 33. And the green book, of course, is this little booklet that African-American travelers used through, like, I think the first one was in like the 40s. Trying to remember. I've, I've definitely looked into this yeah. before, but I can't. It's, it's way old. It's like super <laughs> old. And then they published the last one, I think, in 1964. But like, it's this guide that listed every place in a state that was safe for African-Americans because, you know, especially in the Deep South, you didn't want to get caught traveling at night, especially. In what they call um, sunset towns. In you sunset had to towns, out. you needed to not be caught out. Did you take this trip yourself, by the way, going to these sites? I have taken this, the, tr the drive, I've never stopped at all of the sites. Mm -hmm. um, they stop in Birmingham at the 16th Street Church. Right. They stop in Meridian, Mississippi, in Louisiana. Yeah. Places where lynchings have taken place, mm -hmm. where um, the murder of Medgar Evers, for example. Yep. It is, it's intense in many, many ways. But, but as you said, you didn't know about the Green Book. And it's clear that although Scoob learns some things about civil rights history, he doesn't know. Yeah. And I would say even his father doesn't know about the Green Book because his mother's been very mum on this trip that she took with her husband. And I think that this is one of those funky things that happens with, like, passing history on. It's, a, it's actually, I think we have this psychological imperative to kind of gloss things over. Um, so pushing back against that and making sure we tell the ugly parts is is really important. I think about Elie Wiesel, who won the Nobel Prize in 1986. And like during his speech, he said, it's the memory of evil that will serve as a shield against evil. And he constantly encouraged us to like, look at the ugly, horrible, dirty, painful things that have happened in history, so that we don't repeat them. Um, which is kind of the point of this novel. You see a person who maybe hasn't shared as much as they could have about history and the effect that it has had on this younger person. I'm speaking with the New York Times bestselling author and Atlanta native Nick Stone. She's talking with us about her debut middle grade novel. It's called Clean Getaway, and it's coming out tomorrow. Well, they certainly do encounter racism along the way. Even, you know, this is 2019, and um, as, we, as we know, it hasn't all gone away. Mm -hmm. But she is an older white woman traveling with this young black uh, African-American boy. So in your debut YA novel, this was Dear Martin, mm -hmm. also highlighted race, as you mentioned, as well as police brutality and became a New York Times bestseller. But it was banned by the Columbia County School District in Georgia. Why was it banned? Why did they say? I think I think the jury is still out on why it was banned. Um, every time the superintendent was asked, she changed her response. Um I think at the end of the day, there are some people who feel that discussing issues like police brutality, um, that th they, they feel that those things shouldn't be discussed in classrooms. Uh, I obviously would disagree and say that like a classroom is exactly the place that we should be discussing these tough topics because it's one place where you have people from different backgrounds in the same room. Um, and 
it's school, right? So like this is a place where you're learning and your mind is supposed to be growing. So it was, I, and I went down to Columbia County and it was a wild experience. Uh, but yeah, it, it's cool. It like bumped it up on the bestseller list, banning it. So I'll, <laughs> I'll take it. And you do work a lot with teens and young uh, or middle graders in your book tours, visiting schools, talking with students one-on-one about social justice issues. What did you hear from young readers regarding race and maybe even in response to Dear Martin? Most of the responses I get from young readers, they're all positive. Um, I get a lot of readers, the the African-American readers, thank me for giving them a story that represents them. The white readers will thank me for giving them a story that opened their eyes. Um, But I find that we don't give teenagers enough credit. Most of them do want to be talking about this stuff. They are paying attention. They are looking at the world around them and seeing things that they don't like very much, things that they are bothered by. And I think that's a really good thing. Um, The kids that I encounter on my visits, they actually give me a lot of hope for the future because they are intensely compassionate. They, like I said, they care about all of these things going on in the world. And they really do want the people, most of them want the people around them to feel safe and welcomed. Um, So I get a lot of positive feedback from the young people. So what about people who say these stories, you know, they make my kids uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. I don't I don't need to let my child know about, you know, the intense violence of racial history, for Mm -hmm. example. To those people, I would say you're doing your kids a disservice because honestly, this is information that they're going to need to have to thrive in the world that we're not only living in now, but that we're stepping into. Um, and discomfort, yeah, we treat discomfort like it's such a terrible thing, but honestly, it's a really good thing. Nothing changes if people aren't uncomfortable. So I, I definitely encourage everyone to push a little bit deeper into the things that make you uncomfortable and let them, you know, maybe show you some things about your thinking that could shift um, or, you know, areas where you could grow a bit. I think there's a lot about family, the fear of family discomfort that makes people keep secrets. Mm-hmm. And we learned that there are some family secrets here. Grandma has a lot of them. Um, her storyline is really interesting. As Scoob learns, it's getting unpacked on the trip. Where did you draw the inspiration for her storyline? Interestingly enough, there's a woman here in Atlanta, Doris Payne. Um, so I saw a tweet. This is back in like 2016, 2017. I see a tweet about an 80, I think she was like 80 or something, this like 80-year-old woman who'd been arrested for trying to steal jewelry from a department store. <laughs> I think I remember that and story. And I remember being like, whose gangsta grandma is out here stealing tennis bracelets? And learning about Doris Payne, and she is a black woman who is a, an internationally renowned jewel thief. Like, there's, she has a memoir out now. There's a film. I think there's a, bi- a biopic about her. Um, but she started stealing jewelry when she was very young to help her mother, to get money for her mother to get out of an abusive relationship. Mm. And there was something about seeing a person who has this past that her grandchildren probably don't know about that sparked a desire for me to tell a story about an elderly woman whose grandson thinks she hung the moon, Mm. but who actually has, you know, she's got some stuff in her background that he doesn't know about, but that he is going to learn about. Yeah, and that's one of the fascinating things here. There are so many layers of, of, of understanding and secrets here. And he begins to sort of piece them together. But there is this general sense of, 
just the confusion that mm-hmm. I remember from that age, like trying to figure the world out. Yeah. And, and, you know, he leaves on a lark. He's trying to get out of his punishment on lockdown, as he puts it, and then realizes, like, I'm really far from home yeah. and my grandma is not who I thought she was. How, how do you get into that middle grade head, Nick, when you're writing something like this? I mean, I don't think I've ever actually aged past 12. I just, like, <laughs> have to pay bills now. Um, but I, I think that anybody can get into these situations it's just a just a matter of empathy, right? Like if you the more specific a story is, the more emotional and so the more it's easier to connect with like the emotional core of a thing than it is with like a big grandiose idea, I think. Mm-hmm. Um so getting to this emotional core which is like you're a kid who is on the cusp of like starting and to move away kind of from your parents and what what the the grown-ups around you want you to do, you're starting to move into, like, making decisions for yourself. And that's really scary. I remember being very scared during that time of development, like, still wanting to please my mom and dad, but then also seeing some things where, like, I knew I was going to go in a different direction. And when you have a person that you look up to and you're going through this shift and a part of that shift is seeing that the person that you look up to is different than you thought. Um, it's just like, even thinking about it now, I'm like, oh, yeah, this is, it's actually not that hard to channel. You know what I mean? Yes. Um, and it's interesting because I'm going through kind of a similar thing now, just as my parents begin to age, it's like, whoa, this is a shift. And so the, these shifts, they happen at different points in life, but I think there's like an emotional core that ties them all together. Nick Stone, what a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. And look out for she's got the Shuri, the Black Panther fans, impatiently waiting for Shuri's story. This is T'Challa's sister in the comics and films. That's going to be hitting the shelves from Nick Stone this summer. But right now, she's out with Clean Getaway, out tomorrow, in fact. She's going to also speak at the Thankful Baptist Church in Decatur during the release of the book. Details at our website, gpbnews.org. Stick around. There's more on Second Thought coming up. We're back with On Second Thought from JPB. I'm Virginia Prescott. What do you see when you picture the South? Maybe trees draped in Spanish moss or plantations, rows of crops, civil rights icons, your mother's home cooking, or maybe the bustling interstates that now connect the region. Well, safe to say the South can be seen through many lenses, demonstrated by the High Museum of Art's ongoing Picturing the South project. The long-running series commissions photographers to add images to the collection following one rule. The photos have to be made in the South. The latest from the series is from photographer Alex Harris, which is now on view. He's one of the founders of the Center for Documentary Studies at Duke University, where he's taught for decades. The Atlanta native is joining us now from WUNC in Chapel Hill. Alex, good morning. Good morning, Virginia. Good to be here. Well, glad to have you with us. And no relation, Greg Harris. He is here in the studio with us, associate curator of photographer for the High Museum of Art. Greg, great to have you back on the show. Thanks for having me. All right. So, Greg, first, the overarching thing, the Picturing the South project began in 96. What was behind this project? Uh, there were several projects that were being developed at the museum to coincide with the 1996 Olympics that are happening here in Atlanta. And uh, the photography department wanted to do something that would introduce you know, the world coming to, to the city to the region through the history of photography. So there was an exhibition that covered... Uh, the 19th century all the way to the present, uh, looking at the South through 
many different kinds of photographic storytellers. And they wanted that exhibition to be as current as possible. And so they commissioned three photographers, uh, Dawood Bay, Sally Mann, and Alex Webb, to make new work that would be debuted in that exhibition. And that kind of kicked it off. It was so successful that we have done uh, nine other commissions since then, and it's been ongoing for the last 20-plus years. Yeah, so some big names there. Sally Mann certainly uh, just had a show at the High Museum. Is it common for a museum to commission, not just collect, in other words, works like these? Uh, It's fairly common for museums to commission work, but it's not often done in an ongoing series in such a focused way as the Picture in the South series um, has been. So, uh, you know, know, an artist will have an exhibition and say, let's do some new work to go along with it. Or we have this space. Why don't you do a a site-specific installation to go along with it? But this is something that's really been very focused and has been ongoing uh, for, for a very long time now. And that's fairly unusual. I don't know of any other museum in the U.S. at least that does anything like that. Well, Alex, you are the newest commissionee in your, in your career. You've done largely documentary work, for example, in Hispanic villages in New Mexico or Inuit villages in Alaska. So how did you get involved with Picturing the South? Well, I got involved because I had a phone call from the High Museum with this wonderful assignment to photograph anything I wanted in the South. And in some ways, it was too good an assignment because it, it it's hard to focus when you can do anything. And it took me a while, but I remembered an experience I'd had a decade earlier photographing on a set of a Steven Soderbergh film, Che, in Mexico. And the freedom that I had from the producer to photograph in any way that I wanted on the set. And eventually I came around to the idea of what would it be like if I could photograph on southern narrative film sets if I could get on, say, five or 10 or 20 or, as it turns out, 41 different film sets over a couple of years, what would the pictures say? How would they uh, resonate with one another? And the the show, the accompanying show, is Our Strange New Land, which is now on view, documenting film sets, so for movies shot across the South. Movies... They're staged, they're produced narratives. How did that feel differently from the documentary work you'd done before? Well, I thought it would be very different. And um, in fact, it was not that different from photographing so-called real life. Uh, I I remembered on the Soderbergh set that for the extras, for the people who were there playing Cubans... um, fighting the the uh, Batista regime for them it was real it was uh, the emotions that's what I found on southern film sets Uh, the emotions the ways that people interacted with with one another those reflected the way that we move through the world that's the experience that the the filmmakers are are drawing on and uh, what was really different for me, though, was that in my documentary work or my more traditional documentary work, it might take me weeks or months or years to get to know people well enough to photograph moments that are intense or emotional or to be to be close to those moments. And on a film set, once I had permission to be there and once I um, had the confidence of, say, the assistant director who, who uh, controlled what was happening on set... I could photograph these moments in a matter of minutes. And Mm. it it was really a photographer's dream to work on this project. Yeah, so the drama is already there on some level, you know, both with what's going on in the story and and the set. 
So, so what do we see there, Greg? What comes out of that? Alex did really an amazing job of giving you a sense of kind of what's going on before the camera. So there's some of the pictures that you look at. And it looks like this immaculately lit, incredibly dramatic scene. And then there's other times he pulls back and you can see the edges of the production. You can see, you know, the, the grips and the, the camera workers kind of working around things and you can see the edges of the production and what's going on. And then he also kind of flipped all the way around the other way and you could see what's happening around the set that's not even part of the, the production. So there's this uh, great flow between what's being staged and created for the camera and what's just kind of happening in real life around, around the set. So you get, um, you get a you know real a really deep sense of everything that happens that goes into making a production and just kind of what what everything that contributes to making that story. Let me ask about the choice there, though, Alex. You weren't when you look around at the crew; it's not dozens and dozens of people, but maybe four or five or six in some cases. You weren't working on these blockbuster film sets, not Marvel movies, in other words. And nor were they documentaries. They're independent films and fictional, so not dozens of... It's very intimate. Why did you make that choice? Well, I made that choice for a very practical reason first, that it would have been difficult to get on this many sets if I'd tried to get permission to be on some of the bigger films. But also, uh, I already knew, and I think most of us know, uh, we have images in our mind from the films that we see on Netflix and Amazon so often, and I wanted to enter a new world to explore a different world, which is the world of the imaginations of a new generation of narrative filmmakers in the South. And uh, that's what I did. And I found that I actually had something to offer them uh, because I would give pictures back to the filmmakers and they could use them in any way they wanted. And then I was free to photograph in any way that I wanted. Hmm. And these are not film stills, which has a great tradition in photography, but you are actually taking pictures of the sets or the crew or the scenes on the periphery. You know, Virginia, I started out thinking, I'm just going to photograph what's happening in front of the lens. And as Greg said, I just became fascinated by what was happening behind the scenes on a film, the way the or, or what was happening when, say, a director was trying to speak to an actor who's, who's on, on film for the first time and trying to coach that actor, or uh, what was happening as people in the communities around the film went about their daily lives. And, and I found that those, those moments outside the set were as interesting as those moments that were in front of the camera. And it, it just struck me that and you see this in the pictures that it's sometimes hard to tell the difference between a picture that's, say, of an actor in front of the camera or uh, someone who's who's just um, uh, sitting or talking with someone outside the set. And it it just made me think of the ways in which we're we're really all actors in our own lives, mm. uh, uh, you know, practicing our lines, refining our characters, really playing ourselves. That's the photographer Alex Harris, the newest in the Picturing the South series at the High Museum. Gregory Harris is also with us. He's associate curator of photography at the High Museum. So, Greg, the, the photographers in Picturing the South do not have to be from the South, but they have to make their photos in the South. So how do different photographers approach this task differently? Uh, a lot of the photographers work in, I guess, what we call a documentary tradition. They're responding to the world kind of as it is, trying to tell some story or evoke some sense of you know the way life is lived, what the landscape is like, you know, the infrastructure, um, industry around the city, uh, the city, excuse me, around the region. Um, 
and others work in more um, kind of evocative ways that give you a, just a, a general feeling and, and an emotional tone about about a place. So Sally Mann, for example, um, she started working um, on landscape photography as part of this commission that she received from the high and began experimenting with alternative photographic processes. So she was working with a large camera and 19th century materials. And that gave a very different tone to the pictures. And it allowed her to not just engage with the South and the present, but also connect to the South's past. Um, she's very interested in how the land is the, bears the marks of, of history. And she was able to do that through a combination of the subjects that she photographed, you know, um, plantations, um, the rural landscape, um, but then the, the materials that she was using kind of evoked some of those ghosts of the past that she could kind of you know feel lurking in in these places, which had you know a fraught history, you know often related to to slavery in the Jim Crow South. So she was able to kind of pull that out through a combination of her choices of subject matter and uh, and material. And so it's not necessarily about a specific event or a specific story, but it's about creating a general feeling of um, of the South through through photographs. And Alex, what kind of feeling do you think you were getting? I mean, we're looking at Georgia developing its film industry. It's called Yollywood, you know, huge $9.5 billion industry. Um, what did you notice about, as you were taking photographs of, of the South in contemporary America, what resonated with you historically? What resonated with me was... First of all, the diversity of voices, of, of visions that we're now getting in filmmaking. I, th I think uh, so many of the filmmakers that I worked with were uh, female directors or producers. They were African-American. Uh, they were Hispanic. And it, it was just fascinating to see those perspectives. And I, I think in many ways I was taking a look at the South coming to terms with matters of race and class and sexuality uh, that are, are themes and issues across the country. Uh, one of the things that struck me is, I think, how much the South is like the rest of the country now. Uh, so some, one of the things that I noticed looking at this show is that, as you said, you know, you look, maybe there's a photograph of someone smoking a cigarette, taking a break, or somebody messing with little props. But there's, or, 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 you know, you have the person who's the actor who is splayed out dead, and, and there's somebody there with the, you know, syringe full of blood, fake <laughs> blood that they put on. Right. So, so in a way, kind of puncturing this illusion of, of, of what we see on the film set, what is, what, is that an attempt that you were trying to do there, trying to change the way we look at what's presented in film? Well, you know, uh, there's. it's a really good question. And I, I think what happened to me was when I, I work instinctively and when I was photographing certain scenes that were so graphic and so difficult, the one you mentioned of a, of a man who'd been, who'd been shot and was lying on the ground and uh, others, uh, there are two police officers, one black, one white. And they're just in this terrific argument with one another. I found that if I included the camera in the picture, then uh, I needed to puncture that uh, that illusion because I, I didn't want to make art out of uh, the tragedy that I was seeing in front of me. And it it was it, it just was instinctive to include the camera in many of these photographs. So, as you're looking at contemporary films, do you do you think they're different from how the South was depicted in the past? Let's say you know 40s, 50s, 60s. 
Well, I think every generation uh, can look back on the films that were made before and be surprised by it. And it happens with all of us when we look at a film that's made from a different era. Uh, and some of the things that make us cringe a bit by the who's telling who's telling the story, their attitudes about race or class. And I think things uh, things have really changed in that way that uh, because of the diversity of voices that I was was talking about that. And this is called Strange New Land. Alex's works are going to be added to the existing collection of something like 200 works from previous photographers, some now in storage. So the High is developing a pretty significant collection of work about the South, of the South and about the South. It is almost like the High is creating its own survey of Southern photography. Yeah, about, about a third of the collection, of the photography collection, is either... Uh, of Southern subject matter or by Southern artists. So it's a fairly significant portion of our collection, and it's one of the largest uh, photography collections that, that looks at photography of the South. And you know, because you know, we're you know, right in the heart of the region, we are trying to tell that story and the, the, the history of this medium. Um, and you know, so much has happened in the South that is relevant to the history of photography. If you think about the, you know, the early photographs of the Civil War, which were the first photographs, some of the first photographs made of, of combat or the aftermath of combat, and that all happened in the South, and that was pretty momentous for the history of photography. And then documentary photography in the 1930s that was uh, commissioned by the Farm Security Administration as part of the New Deal. That A lot of the, the greatest pictures from that work, people like Walker Evans and Dorothy Lang, they were working in the South. So a lot of the, the history of American photography has actually taken place here, but it's not often highlighted in that way. And so one of the things that we're trying to do is emphasize uh, the role that that this place has had in the larger narrative of the history of photography. Mm. Alex, uh, we've got a minute left. You're a photographer, of course, a documentarian. Did your perspective of the South change in doing this project? Well, it did in personal ways and in other ways. In personal ways, I've, I've been such a loner by necessity and by choice as a photographer, and all of a sudden I was part of something bigger on these movie sets, a group effort to create a work that would evoke uh, a story that they hoped would resonate widely. And uh, and I think I got to meet a whole uh, group of people who were uh, the actors and the actresses, the filmmakers, who were engaged in narrative storytelling. And I've personally been uh, making these individual images, and now I had a chance to, to make create my own narrative about the South out of the images from all these different sets. Uh, I think I was just struck by, again, by the diversity and the, the engagement of people to... Uh, these are people who need to tell the story that they're telling. They're not doing it necessarily for financial gain. This is a personal story they're telling that, uh, that they hope will resonate widely. Alex Harris, thanks so much for speaking with us. Thank you. Thank you, Virginia. Strange New Land is the name of his show. He's one of the founders of the Center for Documentary Studies at Duke University, where he also teaches. His work from the highs, Picturing the South series, is on view until May 3rd. Greg Harris, thanks so much. Thank you. There's more on Second Thought coming up in just a minute. Stay with us for more. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Since the early days of cinema, action-adventure films have transported and invigorated audiences around the globe. I feel 
While the movies have changed, the staying power of any great flick comes down to the story. And to unpack the art and craft of making these stories, we are sitting down with a Hollywood industry veteran. Atlanta native Michael Lucker has written more than 30 feature screenplays for studios all over Hollywood. He's now back in Georgia teaching film studies at the University of North Georgia and Emory University and Reinhardt University and is author of Crash Boom Bang, How to Write Action Movies. And he's joining us in the studio. Hello. Hello. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Crash, bang, boom. That's a heck of a title, I would say. Thank you. I can thank my publisher for uh, urging me to come up with it. <laughs> when I first came up with a book idea, I uh, pitched uh, the idea of screenwriting 101, how to write movies. Right. And he told me that that wouldn't sell. He said, you need an angle. And I said, what kind of angle? And he said, well, ask your 21-year-old self what book it is you wish you had when you were growing up and starting out in the film industry. And I came up with that, Crash Boom Bang. It's like swinging in on a rope right there. Exactly. <laughs> well, so you were as a staple of the action-packed superhero genre, of course, the origin story. So I want to know more about your origin story. When did watching movies first grab you? Do you remember? Uh, it grabbed me at Perimeter Mall, actually, <laughs> out in uh, sort of the Shambly-Dunwoody area growing up in Atlanta. I, w I was a wee tyke and shuffling in there to escape the woes from the outside world. And um, I saw Raiders of the Lost Ark when I was a kid. And I never forget walking out of the theater that night thinking that's what I want to do with the rest of my life. And then from there, I uh, set off on a course. I started writing all through high school, went off to college and studied film in Boston and moved out to L.A. and uh, began my career. Began your career working with Steven Spielberg, the very director of Raiders of the Lost Ark. That's not lost on me. Uh, <laughs> How did that happen? Well, believe it or not, I was uh, 21, penniless, stumbling around the streets of Los Angeles right after college trying to find a gig. And I stumbled into uh, a bookstore and found the Hollywood Creative Directory. And in it, it had the... Uh, names and addresses and phone numbers of all the people I wanted to work for. And I wrote a hundred letters uh, to everybody that I had in mind, everybody that, you know, I dreamed of ever working for. And from those hundred letters, I got one interview. And that was with Amblin Entertainment, Stevens Company. They interviewed 30 people. They hired me. And uh, within a week, they said, Stevens assistant's leaving. Would you like the job? Wow. And I said, why not? And uh, so I met Stephen on a Friday, and on Monday I started on um, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Well, the irony of it is too beautiful. It is. Uh, it's, it's serendipitous for sure. Wow. So what was that like working for him? You know, this director that you had venerated that had really lit the fire within you. It was a dream come true. I mean, I was very fortunate. It was hard work. It was long hours, but I uh, learned a lot. What did, what did you learn from him, like observing him as a filmmaker and as a businessman? Because as an assistant, you're getting a, a full view, I would imagine. You're right. I um, learned to listen. And as Stephen says, it's not only listening to others around you and employing the best opinions of the smartest people that you can surround yourself with, but also listening to your own intuition, the voice within, and trusting that to make you know, good decisions going forward. 
So you left there, and then you started working as a screenwriter. That's a, you know, you had this stable job with the a titan of Hollywood. That's a pretty scary jump. Yeah, my father was not happy about the fact that I told <laughs> I was leaving Stephen. I felt um, it wasn't the right place for me, and um, I wanted to write. I wanted to tell stories, and I didn't have much time to write because I was working 80 hours a week there. And so I left, and um, I started writing scripts, and I quickly went broke, and I fell on my face, and I got back up, and I got a job at Disney working in creative affairs, mm -hmm. and I worked there for a year and a half working for some other intelligent folks, and I was writing day and night or and lunch breaks until I finally got a script that broke through. I got an agent, and I got an option. I quit my job, moved to the beach, and, and labeled myself a screenwriter. <laughs> you also worked, besides Disney, Wes Craven, the, the fantastic cult horror film director. So quite a range, it looks like, there. So I'm sure that everybody comes to you and says, I have a great idea for a movie. What, what do you tell them when they say that to you? What's funny is they often offer to give it to you for free. All you have to do is write it, and they <laughs> promise they'll split it 50-50 with you. <laughs> That's generous. Right? But as I, I teach and we learn as we write that the writing, the craft, the work of it is, you know, what it's all about. And so it takes time to understand how stories are told, how movies are put together, how characters are woven, how themes are imparted. Um, and do that well, concisely, creatively, within the boundaries of you know, proper screenwriting. So I encourage them to um, take a workshop, take a class, read a book, um, read a script, watch movies with a, a whole new light. But what they often find is thinking you can write a script and having a great idea on a cocktail napkin and actually you know, sitting down and typing out 120 functional pages are very different. I'm speaking with screenwriter Michael Lucker. He teaches screenwriting workshops here in Georgia and all over. He's also written a book on the subject. It's called Crash Boom Bang, How to Write Action Movies. So you've not only written scripts, but you've written this book for people, you know, one of the things that they can consult. So let's talk a little bit about action movies. What makes a great action movie and what stands out about this genre from others that you've written about? Well, I think the tenets of good stories remain uh, largely the same, handed down from Aristotle and you know, put into action, if you will, by storytellers and playwrights and filmmakers of all genres. It's interesting that a lot of people think that what makes great action movies are the big explosions, mm -hmm. the big twists, the high-end spectacles, which you know electrify us in the movie theaters. I think that's kind of the easy stuff to do. Really? What's hard to do in action movies especially is create characters that we invest in, that we care about, and um, tell stories that are going to lift our audience up and make them look at themselves uh, and others around them and the world that they live in in a different way. Yeah, so so when I'm watching the action movie that's that high-pitched, you know, you're watching the, the car chase or somebody leap across skyscrapers and onto the next skyscraper. So I don't necessarily think about character. That's a shame. And I, I think uh, we should all endeavor to try and change that. Um, yeah, we're excited by... Uh, those moments and we feel the rush, you know, in the theaters when we see all those fantastic things happening. But the only reason that we should be invested in the hero actually making it across the crevice or up 
over the building or out of the airplane alive is because um, we like them. Yeah, you care. We, we I care guess about you have to be them, invested. and we're hoping that they return to you know the person that uh, that they love. So, what are your go-to action films to teach from? Die Hard, unquestionably, remains um, one of the, the the main go-tos because when it came out at the time, it broke the mold in a variety of ways. The way that the story is uh, crafted on top uh, is very clear and uh, very simple, which I think in most action movies um, they are. It's about one hero trying to get his girl out of a building. And when he does, the movie's over. What's happening underneath that is uh, the fact that you know, John McClane, Bruce Willis's mm-hmm. character, um, is a broken man with self-esteem and ego issues that have gotten in the way of a functional relationship. And uh, he has to fix those, mend those, in order to uh, transform, in order to, A, take the terrorist down, and B, to get his girl back. Okay, so Die Hard is one. Um, others that I'm thinking of, what works for you? The sort of Jason Bourne movies? I love that... the Jason Bourne movies. I think they're fantastic. And they're incredibly simplistic as well. Um, but they put so much time, effort, energy into crafting powerful scenes and into extraordinary production value. In essence, Jason Bourne's journey is to uh, find out who he is. And if you remember the, the original uh, Jason Bourne um, story, he had amnesia. And he was just trying to find out um, who he was in the world and where he belonged, which is, I think, in part, you know, what we're all going through on this planet, you know, trying to figure out who we are and what we're supposed to do. You're bringing up something that I noticed in the book. There are a lot of, besides that, you know, the how-tos and really walking through the paces of dialogue and scene setting and and peeling away the onion of the story, I think is what you call it in the book. There's also your own little personal anecdote. So you are, you know, you're walking the talk, I suppose, that the idea of who you are as a person goes into the film in the same way who we are as viewers goes into the film. But tell me about that decision to write those little anecdotes, you know, to really expose yourself for for all of the parts of you, the the parts that don't don't think you quite get it or feel insecure when you're thrashing through it. Sure. I don't know if that was born out of my teaching experience or not, but I wanted the idea of becoming a professional screenwriter to seem achievable to everyone. I did it from growing up in Chambly, Georgia. Um, and I think that um, knowing that uh, you know, there's strengths and weaknesses that you have that will allow you to uh, break in, but also the fact that um, I wanted all my students to feel as though they could become screenwriters. And uh, knowing that um, there are pitfalls out there and they can be overcome is one thing that's important for them to understand. Knowing that there are high points and low points of the industry is um, essential for anybody to know trying to break into it. Well, let's let's talk about a scene from a, a great scene from a film. Here's a clip from the 2000 film Gladiator. Ridley Scott directed it. This is starring Russell Crowe and Joaquin Phoenix. How dare you show your back to me, slave? Will you remove your helmet and tell me your name? My name is Maximus Decimus Meridius, commander of the armies of the North, general of the Felix Legions, loyal servant to the true emperor, Marcus Aurelius. 
Father to a murdered son, husband to a murdered wife, and I will have my vengeance in this life or the next. <laughs> What's interesting about Gladiator is that it takes the typical her- hero transformation and inverts it in such a way that Maximus never really transforms. He is an incredible hero, an incredible soldier, an incredible father, an incredible incredible husband from the get-go. But as a result of all that, he's plucked out of his safety zone and put into the middle of the Colosseum and and forced to fend for his life. It's then up to him to rely on all his resources in order to try and extricate himself from that. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, he does. He gives up his own life in order to do that. But what he does in the process is he changes Rome. He changes the world around him. He changes the lives of all those around him. And I can think of nothing more heroic than leaving the world a better place than, than you found it. One question I have about, you know, technology in films that, you know, so many action films and other films are made in front of green screens and all of the effects are added later. This is something that there are other directors that have criticized, other screenwriters who have criticized it even very recently. As a screenwriter, when you are creating character, when you're seeing through the film, is that more or less difficult that absolutely anything is possible using special effects? It's actually one of the things that I learned working for Steven is that the imagination is the only thing that's keeping us from creating anything we want. Anything, anywhere can be done on screen. I think the trick is um, for filmmakers today to not get lost and rely on um, the green screen and on the technical aspects of it, to make, but to make sure that the story itself and the characters themselves are uh, as strong as they can be. I'm thinking of specifically of you know Scor- Martin Scorsese, the famous director, has gotten in a lot of or taken some heat for for saying that you know Marvel, the whole franchise thing is this isn't cinema. This is predictable. It's like going to a theme park. And I wondered if you had any thoughts on that because that's something that a lot of people have complained about that the original small personal films aren't getting made because these big Hollywood blockbusters are just recycling the same old ideas. Well, having worked at a studio and worked with the studios for many years, I can assure you that they would make whatever audiences want to see. And the fact is, audiences gravitate toward these big, dynamic, spectacle movies with characters that they can care about. And with all due respect to Martin Scorsese, he just delivered a a three-and-a-half-hour film, which has a few issues. And so... um, I think he could probably learn a thing or two from, from Marvel. All right. So um, I can't let you go without asking your idea of the perfect screenplay. Is there, is there one that stands out for you? I'm sure there are many. There's a lot of great ones, but I've, I've long been a big fan of Shane Black's work. And the original Lethal Weapon, uh, he wrote, I believe, as a 22 or 23-year-old coming out of UCLA. And it um, kind of lit the genre of action films on fire and set all the precedents on their head and uh, paved a new way in crafting um, movies that had characters with flaws, issues that needed to be resolved. And uh, 
and in their pursuit of them uh, led them to great transformation and ultimately to uh, great endings. One piece of advice for an aspiring screenwriter starting out? Write as often as you can and read not only screenplays um, but books and learn how the stories are put together. Do they call you Professor Lucker? They do. Professor Lucker, thanks. Thank you for having me. <laughs> My pleasure. Screenwriter Atlanta native Michael Lucker, film studies lecturer at the University of North Georgia. He also teaches at Emory University and at Reinhardt University. You can find more about his book and the screenwriting workshops he teaches at screenwritersschool.com. And we're going to leave you today with an epic film classic from John Williams, The Raiders March from Raiders of the Lost Ark. On Second Thought is produced by Amelia Brock, LaRaven Taylor, Priya Mahadevan, and Jake Troyer. Jesse Neiswanger is our engineer. Mary Lynn Ryan is our executive producer. I'm Virginia Prescott. Thanks for your time and for listening to On Second Thought. Thank you.